Hello, welcome back to Current Account and to our first episode back in the new year. So, Happy New Year. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. This week's Current Account, we're going to talk about something that happened at the end of 2023, which was the COP28 meetings that took place in the UAE. So what are COP28? This is basically an annual event that is held by the United Nations to help on climate change. The idea of this is to have international governments supplemented by nonprofits, NGOs, the private sector, academics, to work through issues on how to address climate change. There have been very famous examples of this where negotiations worked very well, such as in 2015 when there was a Paris Agreement on trying to get a lot of the world's major countries on the same page regarding the most effective ways to combat climate change. At the same time, there's been years where it hasn't worked as well. But instead of kind of trying to figure all of that out, let's talk about what happened just recently at COP28. And for that, I'm joined by our Managing Director on Global Policy Initiatives, and our Head of Sustainable Finance, Sonia Gibbs. Sonia has been on Current Account with me before and has a lot of experience at the COP meeting. She's gone to a few of them. And she was, of course, on the ground in Dubai leading the IIF's delegation there. So, Sonia, thank you again for joining us today. And let me just start with a question for you on what was your experience at the conference and uh, you know, maybe a little more background on COP itself would be helpful for the audience. Thanks, Clay. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, thanks for, for picking climate. I think uh, it's going to be a tremendous set of issues in 2024. So it's really good to start off the year with a look at what happened at COP28 in Dubai. You know, I, I think one way to look at this is COP traditionally, this conference of the parties, as they call it, COP, has been every five years. It's been a big negotiation between, at, at country level, heads of state negotiating country climate commitments. However, ever since uh, Glasgow, which was in 2021, private sector has been uh, coming to the party, as it were. And we're getting an increasing awareness of just how much money is going to be needed for all of this climate action. So. There's not enough public funds in the world. Private sector capital has to, to go to this fight. So when the stakes are this high, the job is never really done. So we've moved from having COP every five years to having COP every single year. And that's a, a lot of work. But I think the big message from COP28 in Dubai is that transition to a, a net zero or low carbon economy, it's just not going fast enough. You think about the Paris targets to keep global warming to under one and a half degrees centigrade. We don't just need emissions reductions. That's important, right? That's, that's the whole point. We got to decarbonize. But one thing you saw in Dubai was more recognition that decarbonization needs to be affordable. It needs to be reliable. It needs to be verifiable. All of these climate solutions, they have to work in the real world. And it also has to be commercially viable. 
emissions reduction has to support industrial competitiveness. In other words, the idea that we need kind of a pro-growth, pro-people approach to transition is, is really taking root. And I would argue, you know, at Dubai, there was genuinely some sense of optimism. Okay, there's no silver bullets here. There just, there can't be. But when you talk with people from all over the world, there were 80,000 people at COP and more than 150 heads of state. So this was the biggest COP ever in Dubai. And these pledges that everybody's making need to be converted to action. And just to give you a little sense of scale here, if the pledges at COP28 are all delivered, it would mean that by 2030, the world would have four gigatons less of greenhouse gas emissions than if there weren't all these climate pledges. So if they're business as usual. However, <laughs> what we need by 2030 is 22 gigatons less. So for, you know, 22, that's progress that we're seeing. But the bottom line, I think, in Dubai, you might call it the UAE consensus. So what they said was, you need a global transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just and orderly manner, accelerating action to get to net zero by 2050 in keeping with science. And that was actually the first time that fossil fuels were mentioned in the COP communique, as it were. So it's kind of a big deal with the major oil producing country holding the, the COP presidency. So, so significant progress, you know, in, in different ways. You saw much more focus on transition finance. You know, what does it mean? How can the private sector help? And also more focus on blended finance. Sonia, thank you very much. And, you know, it is interesting. Obviously, we work with financial institutions. And a lot of the parts that you mentioned phasing out of fossil fuels, for instance, but basically making sure we keep up with the science. In some respects, it doesn't sound like that's about finance. But of course, as you mentioned at the end, there's a lot being discussed on transition finance and on blended finance. So maybe if you could go a little deeper into those aspects so that we can understand like what is the financial capability or financial aspect of those issues as we look forward to trying to tackle this enormous challenge for mankind, which is climate change. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. When you think about blended finance, what you've got there is a combination of public funds, philanthropic funds, private sector investment, just what the name says, blended finance. The big focus now is on the potential of blended finance to support climate transition. I mean, it's not new, right? You know, I know we've been working on blended finance in the context of infrastructure. And now the focus is on sustainable projects. But the big problem is just the scale of the funding we need to transform and decarbonize the whole global economy. So if you added up all of the resources, all of the balance sheets of the multilateral development banks, all of the national development finance institutes, even all that money isn't enough. And governments, you know, in a, in a high debt world that we live in, their capacity to keep borrowing is also constrained. So the real focus is on catalyzing private capital. And you see that also in the talk about reform of the multilateral development banks, how they can more effectively use their own balance sheets to leverage and support private finance with a focus on climate goals. And 
That's something you hear, for example, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's emphasized this in her speeches during 2023. So how do we do this? You know, incentives are one way to go about it. You have the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, the EU Green Deal Industrial Plan. But this kind of incentives and subsidies, they, they cost a lot of money and they're limited in scope. So blended finance has been successful but small, I think you'd say, right? It, it's, it's, it's highly individualized, customized by project. Blended finance flows over the past uh, five years have averaged around $10 billion U.S. dollars a year. That's really very small in the context of the trillions that are needed for climate change. And very little of this money, by the way, goes to low-income countries that are most affected by climate change and biodiversity loss. So the potential of blended finance is tremendous. It can really be a powerful tool to unlock private sector investment and help sectors that are high emissions. And whether that's oil and gas, whether that's electricity, whether that's agriculture, transportation, all of these sectors are going to have to, to transition and blended finance can help. And maybe one of the most unique aspects of blended finance is how it can de-risk opportunities for private investors. So if you have a multilateral development bank taking on more of the risk, maybe what they call kind of a first loss part of the deal, they can help make sustainable projects more attractive. And that can really help in climate capital for emerging markets because, you know, it's a, a lot of different layers of risk when you're talking about climate projects in emerging markets. You have the inherent risks of investing in emerging markets, coupled with climate risks, and also even uh, credit risk, political risk, technology risk as well is a factor here. So all eyes, I think, are going to be on blended finance. Excellent. So let me move a little bit. When we think of finance, we usually think of a variety of different things. You think of, obviously, kind of what you were just getting at, which is providing just finance. But there's another thing that we also have to think about, which is markets. We've heard about for years carbon markets and the compliance mechanisms that are involved. And sometimes you hear about voluntary markets. Sometimes you hear about mandatory markets. Could you kind of give us some of your impressions about what are voluntary markets for carbon and uh, the compliance mechanisms? But maybe... Was there any developments in this area at the COP meetings that just took place? As we had been saying earlier, the private sector has been playing much more of a role in these climate talks. And, and what does the private sector do best? The private sector makes markets. And voluntary carbon markets are an excellent example of the type of environmental finance markets we need. So let me just explain briefly the difference between voluntary markets and mandatory or compliance markets. The bottom line is that compliance markets have been around for a long time. They involve things like emissions trading schemes. But the basic idea for compliance markets is that these are country to country level markets. Voluntary carbon markets allow companies to buy and sell carbon credits in order to meet their own climate commitments or some part of their climate commitments. Obviously, the, the main thing companies have to do is reduce their emissions, but there's also room, you know, and you, you can't just simply turn off the lights and reduce all of your activity to nothing that companies can't operate. Some proportion of the work can be done by buying a credit 
for emissions that are being reduced elsewhere. And the most common example here might be something like a forestry credit, right? If you have a big rainforest in the Amazon, if you're a, a rainforest country, you can have a project that produces carbon offsets. So you can sell those as credits in, in voluntary carbon markets. The trick is making sure that all of this works. The voluntary carbon markets have had challenges over the years with making sure that these carbon credits do what they're supposed to do. And actually, each of them takes out its ton of carbon emissions from the atmosphere. And that means policing and verification, making sure what happens is, is what the carbon credits are supposed to be doing, removing carbon from, from the atmosphere or absorbing it. So you've got two sides to, to voluntary carbon markets. One is on the supply side. So do these credits do what they're supposed to be doing? And one is on the demand side. Are companies using the credits appropriately? Are they reporting them right? Are they doing the accounting accurately? And none of this is easy, right? Because it's a kind of a, there's a lot of fuzziness around this area of uh, ensuring or understanding fully the science behind these carbon credits. But at COP, I think you saw a fair bit of progress on bringing all the stakeholders together. So the groups like Science-Based Targets and the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative, the International Sustainability Standards Board and other regulators are also increasingly looking at the use of these credits and how they're being accounted for. And then the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market has developed new core carbon principles that set a benchmark like for any other commodity market, right? You have a benchmark in West Texas uh, Intermediate, or you have Brent Crude. You have benchmarks for every commodity market. And the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market has set these up for carbon credits, which is great. So we're getting closer to bringing everybody to the same page, including recognition of the need for integrated carbon markets. So you can't just have these compliance markets and voluntary markets going on forever and ever on separate tracks. Ultimately, they need to come together and be interoperable, be one big market, because it's only by getting markets up to scale that, that they will function properly. So a little bit of progress seen here at COP. Carbon markets are really kind of set to take off around the world. So watch this space. So I liked what you said there. I mean, it's important sometimes people to remember a little bit of progress actually can go a long way. Now, obviously, there are criticisms out there that these COP meetings are fine and they're important and all, but you, know, you don't make enough progress. You're not doing enough. You're not taking the emergency of climate change seriously enough. Now, there are other critics on a completely different side of things that says, you're doing too much and actually it's going to harm the economy. And I thought that you've been very strong about basically saying, look, you get, there's an importance of getting some of the balance correctly here and also making progress is a good thing. So in that light or in that context, we're in the first week of January as we record this. What are you looking forward to in 2024 and the lead up towards, I guess, what will be the COP29 meetings that will take place in November? in Baku, Azerbaijan? Well, bringing out the, the crystal ball. <laughs> to me, one of the most interesting recognitions at, at, at COP in Dubai was this idea that we've really got to be running two energy systems in parallel. Not only do we need to scale up 
climate solutions like renewables and energy efficiency and nuclear capacity and climate technology. All of that is really, really important, yes. But at the same time, we've also got to decarbonize our existing energy system. It's just as important. So in this sense, it was very interesting to see at COP that fossil fuel producers, accounting for almost half of oil and gas production around the world, signed a charter to reduce their emissions in their operations, including methane, and committed to, to more transparency and reporting. So that, that piece of the puzzle is going to be important. So that's one thing. You've got to have two energy systems in parallel to get to 2050. Second, there's been a lot of progress by the financial sector in making financing commitments, but we've still got a massive trillions in funding gaps, something like over 40 trillion between now and 2050. So there's a lot of progress. COP28 saw more than 80 billion in climate finance commitments. But again, the scale is still missing here. And parking back to our blended finance discussion, we're really going to be relying on that. So that's number two. Number three, I think it's interesting to note that the critical technologies we need for net zero, largely these are already available. The challenge is to accelerate the deployment of these new technologies uh, in making new green businesses and getting them out to market. And I think, again, this is a funding question. And you mentioned uh, COP29 in Azerbaijan. After that comes COP30, which is in Brazil, obviously home to the world's largest rainforest, carbon sink. So a lot more focus on nature coming up, including by our regulators and, and policymakers as well. And finally, I think, you know, the name of the game in climate issues has always been what they call mitigation, right? Stopping climate change or, you know, mitigating this global warming. But any poor country will tell you in particular that the damage is already done. So we need a focus on adaptation to what is already happening. And that's critical in climate action. And countries and companies are starting to take real action in areas like health, food, water. So lots to, to look ahead to. And we will be looking forward to working with all of our members. Okay. Well, thank you, Sonia. This is, this is terrific. And by the way, I mean, when I was just going through, I was writing down what you were saying on the kind of looking forward to. And you said at least four and maybe five, depending on how you count, big, big issues going forward. So it sounds to me like you have a lot of work in front of you. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'll be somewhat helpful to you, but <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was, as always, uh, terrific. Thank you so much. I mean, I think the political dimension of all of this, and it, it really is a highly political issue, so your insights there are going to be super useful. Thank you. Well, Sonia, thank you very much for taking the time today, and it's certainly been a great time chatting with you, helping us understand what happens at COP and what will be happening in that whole wider sustainable finance space going forward. So now it's time for the three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. So my three main takeaways from my conversation with Sonia are the following. The first, and maybe it's obvious to people, but it's still important to reflect on, is the transition to a net zero emission for a lot of people, it's just not going fast enough. And so we need to find ways to accelerate that process. Secondly, 
the process of decarbonization is going to include a lot, the importance of finance. But scaling up finance to do this is really hard to do. How do you catalyze private capital as best as possible? How do you de-risk the system so that more investment will flow towards decarbonizing the economy? That is something that policymakers are trying to take on in a major way, and COP is a way of trying to move that process forward. And third, and related, is that carbon markets, voluntary carbon markets, I actually love the word that Sonia said, which is its fuzziness. So how do you shave off the fuzz so that we can actually have more clarity and that the supply side and the demand side will meet and COP and a lot of other people have been trying to work on that, creating core principles and core standards to try to do just that. The two things I'm looking forward to, Sonia mentioned four things, and actually they were all quite complicated. So let me talk to you from my perspective. The one is just, look, I mean, can we make progress towards some of the things that Sonia mentioned for the Baku meetings that will take place for COP29 in November of 2024? And the second is, you know, this is a year, 2024, that we're going to see elections in a lot of different countries. The words ESG and carbon emissions and so forth is going to be part of those election seasons. And we're going to see that. We definitely see that in the United States all the time. But I think we're going to see that in a lot of other countries, including the EU um, and others, where you're starting to see some pushback on this agenda. But, of course, at the same time, you'll see people that think very strongly about the climate change agenda that will also be trying to push for their candidates. So I think that this is something that we'll be looking forward to as this election season develops. And now my one sports fact. I'm going to talk about a sport that I love to watch, which is college football. College football for years has been hard to figure out who would be the national champion. And that's because it's hard to come up with a playoff system that makes sense because the people that are playing football are also supposed to be studying. And football takes up a lot of time, and it's a hard thing to do. Over the last 10 years, we've had a system where you, the authorities picked four teams. Now, usually you would pick a bunch of teams, they play each other off, they would knock each other out and so forth, and then you would get your final four. But in football, we haven't done that. We've had, a, we've had just four teams. And in that time frame, Basically, we've had one team that did not come from the south, southern part of the United States, which was Ohio State, win. Every other team that has won has come from the southern part of the U.S. But this year, we will have someone from a different part of the country. And that's because in very exciting bowl games that happen in the Final Four, Michigan, which is from the northern part of the United States, beat Alabama in overtime. And Washington, which is from the western part of the United States, beat Texas. And so now, Washington, which last won the national championship in football in 1991, will play Michigan, which last won it in 1997. Maybe more interesting to me is that Washington represents a division. So there are five major conferences in college football. There's a bunch of different conferences, but there's only five major ones. One of them is going bankrupt and going out of business, and that's called the Pac-10, which, of course, is now the Pac-12, which actually may be more than 12 teams and never. It's always very confusing to me, but it doesn't matter. The Pac-12 is going out of business. There will not be a Pac-12 next year. Well, Washington is in the Pac-12, so it's basically the champion of the division that is going out of business, and they're going to be playing Michigan. 
And then next year, Washington will be in the same conference as Michigan, which I know is a little confusing because, well, it's just a little confusing. Anyway, this year's national championship will be played between two teams that have not won it in, well, 26 years and 33 years. And so I think it's kind of exciting to see new teams come up and via for the best team in college football. So I don't know whether to root for Michigan or to root for Washington, but I can say it should be an exciting game. So that's going to wrap up our first episode of Current Account for 2024. I want to thank my colleague, Sonia Gibbs, for her excellent presentation on COP. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year and goodbye. Goodbye.